0: Turn, if you would, to 1 Peter. We are going to work our way through 1 Peter, which will be followed by 2 Peter. And then after that, we're going to do the minor prophets, and that should keep us occupied for the year. Uh, My wife is showing up. I actually abandoned her this morning with three grandkids. So, I'm the guilty party, she's the saint. First Peter, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit... For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. When I first started outlining what I was going to do working through 1 Peter, I uh, played with the idea of starting with two lessons giving the history of Peter. And I decided that was a little too much. So we're going to spend about 15 minutes reminding ourselves who Peter is. Uh, After looking at the hundred and something verses that mention him, I finally kept cutting them out and cutting them out, and I got down to nine. So if you would, back up a little bit to the book of Matthew, chapter 4. I use Matthew because every excuse I get to teach Matthew, I jump at. So... Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. In the Gospel of Matthew, this is the first time we meet Peter. And you get the impression that Jesus is just walking along and he sees two random people and says, come on. Well, we learn in the book of John, it actually wasn't exactly like that. Peter and Andrew had actually been disciples of John, the Baptist, not John the Apostle. And John had initially told them, there's Jesus Go talk to him. So the impression we got is that they had met Jesus before and then had gone back to their fishing, and Jesus comes along and says, come on and follow me. And they did. How crazy is that to think that some guy walks up to you and says, leave your livelihood, leave your family, come on. But what are we going to do? Where are we going to sleep? What are we going to eat for dinner? What's going to happen? Tell me. Nah, just come on, and I will make you fishers of men. Matthew chapter 14. I told you we were going to race through this part, right? Matthew chapter 14, verse 24. Ah, Well, we'll start in verse 22. Immediately He made the disciples get into the boat and go before Him to the other side. This is the other side of the Sea of Galilee. While He dismissed the crowds. And after He had dismissed the crowds, He went up onto the mountain by Himself to pray. When evening came, He was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, He, Jesus, "...came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He, Jesus, said, Come." So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, this passage explains a lot about Peter. Peter is an interesting character. Peter is a man of faith. Peter is one who you say to jump off the cliff, and he jumps off the cliff. And while he's falling off the cliff, he starts thinking, what did I just do? He is a man of faith, and when he acts on that faith, sometimes, well, he wonders what he just got himself into. Jesus is walking across the waters. I've told you this before. This is my engineering mind going, how is he doing this? You know, is he walking up and down the waves, or is he just walking straight through them? I don't know. Anyway, he's walking on the water. The disciples see him and say, well, they're terrified. But Peter says, hey, if it's you, let me come to you Jesus says, sure, why not? So Peter hops out of the boat. Throughout the entire life of Peter, we have to give Peter credit for the fact that he had faith in Jesus. But we also have to acknowledge the fact that he's a human being just like we are. So he gets out in the water, and he's walking on top of the water. And I know what I would have done What in the world am I doing? How in the world is this happening? What am I standing on? He was a fisherman. He knew all about the Sea of Galilee. And all of a sudden, he loses sight of Jesus, looks at the storm, and he begins to sink. And Jesus lifts him up and says, Why did you doubt? We're going to see this throughout the life of Peter, but... Something is going to happen. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, "'Who do people say that the Son of Man is?' And they said, "'Some say John the Baptist, "'others say Elijah, "'and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets.' "'He said to them, "'But who do you say that I am?' Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, And whoever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whoever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. We are very familiar with this passage. We covered it in John when we worked through that, or Luke. And um, Jesus gets his disciples away. He says, okay, what's the word on the street? Who do people say that I am? And there were all kinds of ideas. And finally, he looks at the disciples and says, yeah, but who do you say that I am? And Peter gives the right answer. Now, Jesus says, good answer. But you didn't get that. The Spirit gave you the right answer. And then we get into a discussion that deals with Peter's, well, the rest of his life. In the Bible, we have the Gospels that talk at length about Peter. We have the book of Acts that talks about Peter a lot. He is mentioned in the book of Galatians, not favorably. He's mentioned in the book of Galatians, and that's it. Church history, on the other hand, has a discussion about what became of Peter. And just to finish the story, we'll jump to that because it revolves around this passage. Several hundred years after the close of the book of Acts, the Roman Catholic Church begins to develop this hierarchy that we know today. And they gave primacy to the bishop of the church at Rome. And in doing so, they declared that Peter was the bishop, the first bishop of the church at Rome. Therefore, Peter was the first pope. And today, we have a pope that is in apostolic succession, tracing all the way back to Peter. And they do this based on this passage, you are Peter, and upon you, I am going to build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And whatever you bind on, in, on the earth will be bound, and whatever you loose will be loosed. It's Peter, the head of the church. We understand this passage a little bit differently. It is not Peter that is the foundation of the church. It is the confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Because without that confession, there is no church. We just finished a discussion last year of the doctrinal statement of the church, and we talked about all kinds of things. But let's suffice it to say, without Christ, there is no I mean, there is no Christian church. So we have a difference of opinion about Peter and his authority in the church. Now, Peter, as we're going to see in the book of Acts, was the head of the church in Jerusalem for a while. We understand from church history that he probably died in Rome. But we also understand from church history he probably did not start the church in Rome in the same way that Paul did not start the church in Rome. Remember, the book of Romans was written to the church at Rome because Paul hadn't been there before. So the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, wants to build its authority on the presence of Peter and Paul starting the church in Rome, becoming the first pope, and thus the source of authority. We do not believe that. It is interesting, just out of curiosity, at the end of 1 Peter, we're going to see that that Peter is writing this from Babylon. But he's probably not in Babylon. The general assumption of most of the scholars is that he's talking about Rome. It's kind of the code word for Rome being a decadent place. I don't know if you are aware of it. I'm not going to go see it. But there's a movie out now about the early days of Hollywood. About the decadence in the early days of Hollywood. And what is that movie called? Babylon. Because that is the phrase that we use to talk about a decadent place. And so, Peter, writing the book of 1 Peter, is writing probably from Rome, but he says, I am in Babylon. Now, the early reformers during the Reformation, trying to discredit the Roman Catholic Church, said, nah, Peter never even went there. And when it says he's writing from Babylon, he's probably writing from Babylon, which produces its own set of problems because we don't really know too much about a Christian church in Babylon. There were probably Christians there. So what's to take away from all of this? Well, it doesn't discredit anything in the Bible or, the first, uh, or in 1 Peter if he was or wasn't in Rome. He probably was. It doesn't discredit anything from Peter to say he's not the first pope, and if the Roman Catholic Church wants to say he's the pope, that's their job. We don't recognize popes. But he was a major authority in the early church. Now, this passage in Matthew is followed by Jesus rebuking him because Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to go and die. And Peter says, heck no, you're not going to do that. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, get thee behind me, Satan. You're trying to thwart the will of God. (sighs) I've got to hurry or we're not going to make it. In Matthew 26, Jesus tells Peter that you're going to deny me three times. Later, Peter denies him three times. When Jesus is crucified, we have to remember, we talked about this on numerous occasions, we have to remember when Jesus was crucified, the church stopped. There are those who want us to believe that Jesus was crucified, he died, that's the end of the story. And then the disciples get together over on the side and say, how do we create this thing called Christianity? No, that didn't happen. Peter told the other disciples, I'm going to go fishing. Literally, that's what he said. I'm going to go fishing. Why? He was going back to his old job. He was going back to what he knew how to do until they met the resurrected Lord. Now, the difference between the Peter that we see in the Gospels and the Peter that we see in the book of Acts is seeing the risen Lord. All of a sudden, Peter, this fisherman, stands up on the day of Pentecost, talks to thousands of people, and thousands convert to believing in Jesus Christ. That's Acts chapter 2 and into 3. And then we see Peter performing miracles and all of this. But the other portion of the book of Acts that I want to talk about just briefly is Acts chapter 10. This is the story of Cordelius. Peter is a good Jew. Okay, Just in case you're ever curious, Jesus was a Jew and all the disciples were Jews. Okay, Just to remind ourselves. As a good Jew, he was following the Jewish laws. There are certain things you eat and certain things you don't eat. My high school students, when I mention this, just get off on this long discussion about what they can and can't eat. Anyway, so Peter is taking a nap, and he sees a vision. This sheet is lowered down, and it's opened up, and here are all these unclean animals, you know, the animals you're not supposed to eat. And God says, enjoy your dinner. And Peter says, heck no. Three times this is repeated, and finally God tells him, don't call unclean what I have called clean, and almost immediately there's this knock at the door, and there's this messenger asking Peter to go from Joppa up to Caesarea to meet a centurion by the name of Cornelius. Cornelius. And you know what? As much as it violates your upbringing, when God tells you to do something, you do it. So Peter gets up and he walks and he enters this Gentile's house. And he shares the gospel with them. And guess what? They become believers. And he goes back to Jerusalem. And he says, you're not going to believe what happened. And they say, you're right, we don't believe it. And he says, but the Spirit came upon them. And who are we to argue about what God is doing? And they go, you're right. Why is this significant? Because this is the transformation, the mystery, as it is described, that the Jewish community and the Gentile community are going to be combined together in the church as we know it today. And this is important because most of us are Gentiles. So God is telling the people, the Christians, my church is going to be Jewish and Gentile Merge together. If you remember, in the introduction of 1 Peter, we listed through this, well, this group of areas. To the church in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. If you look at a map, there's the Black Sea, and this is all the area at the base of the Black Sea. Scholars debate, is Peter writing to a Jewish audience Or is he writing to a Gentile audience? And the answer is yes. You see, they're going to work through this and we're going to look at things referring to Abraham, etc. And you go, ah, it must be a Jewish audience. But then he's going to talk about their former lives where they lived in ignorance. And you go, ah, it must be a Gentile audience. And the answer is yes. Because Peter is demonstrating what Jesus had, what God had taught him with Cornelius, that there is no distinction. Now, just to get on Paul's side just a little bit, Paul actually chastises Peter, though, because Peter kind of slides a little bit. Peter goes and shares dinner with his Gentile friends, until his Jewish friends show up, and all of a sudden, Peter kind of separates from his Gentile friends in order to not upset his Jewish friends. And Peter says, uh, I mean, Paul says, uh uh-uh, uh, not gonna do that. So, what we have is this fisherman who has become the head of the church because of his relationship with Jesus Christ and his seeing the resurrected Lord. So, church history tells us that Peter was in fact martyred for his faith. Probably during the reign of Nero and he probably was executed in the city of Rome. That is Peter. We've made it through the first word of 1 Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. If you want Peter's Job description, that's it. For those of us who have spent a lot of time um, looking at Paul's letters, you know that Paul refers to himself, and he is, an apostle. But Paul is always having to prove that he was an apostle. It's always kind of a question, while he wasn't really part of the inner circle, Peter doesn't have that problem. Peter is an apostle. An apostle is one that has spent time with Jesus and has been sent out to do something. But he's not just any apostle, he is the apostle of Jesus Christ. Remember, we have talked about this at length Jesus is his name, Christ is not his last name, Christ is his title, Christ is the chosen, the Messiah. Paul, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So, who is he writing this to? To those who are elect exiles. Now, we can stop there for the next uh, three weeks, but we're not going to do that. There are two words that are used to describe the audience, to describe this church in... This area south of the Black Sea. Those two words are elect and exile. Let's start with exile, because then we'll run out of time and we won't have to talk about election. Just kidding. There is no great evidence that this church was actually kicked out of any place. You know, in the scripture, we know at different times the Jews were kicked out of Rome and this group was kicked out of this group and that group was kicked out of that group. And later in the book, he's going to refer to the recipients of the letters as sojourners and strangers. Now, here's the question. Had they lived in this area and been forced to move to this area, and thus were exiles? Or is Peter talking about the fact that I, me, here, having accepted Jesus Christ, am now a stranger and sojourner, an exile in the world that I'm living in right now? I may not have moved geographically, but I have moved spiritually to the point that I am now a stranger and a sojourner. I actually was talking to somebody yesterday, and I mentioned that I was going to be teaching 1 Peter, and they said, what's the hardest thing you're going to have to communicate? That was actually their question. And I said, well... This whole idea of being a stranger in the world in which we live. Now, I know what you're thinking. The world is getting weirder and weirder, and I feel more and more strange. And that's true. That's very true. But the reality is, it was strange all along. We just didn't know it. The book of First Peter is going to talk to these Christians who are undergoing some form of persecution and the book of First Peter says you shouldn't be surprised. This world is not your home and you need to have hope. The book of 1 Peter is really about hope because we are strangers in a strange land. You trace all the way back to Abraham, and the Bible says Abraham lived in a tent all of his life. Abraham was a rich dude. Anytime he wanted, he could have gotten his hundreds of servants and say, build me a mansion. And you know what? It had been built. But he was a stranger in a strange land. He was a sojourner. He was just living in the land. So the church that Peter is addressing is like us today. We're not physically kicked out of anywhere, but spiritually, we're different. And if we're not, that's the problem. We are exiles, and we are elect. Now, the doctrine of election causes some people trouble, but the Bible, it causes stand trouble, Go ahead. Before you leave Exiles. Here it says Exiles of the Dispersion. Yeah. What is the Dispersion? I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> and it's capitalized. It is, yeah. Yeah, I think that's interesting. A place that's, uh, well, a place yeah. A place. Or an event. Or yeah. The doctrine of election causes people difficulty. Because it's connected to the doctrine of predestination, and the doctrine of predestination has caused lots of family arguments. Just a week and a half ago, I'm walking through the bookstore with my son, and he says, Do you believe in the doctrine of predestination? (laughs) Out of the blue. I I, I often, well, one day I actually did this when the kids were younger. For one day, I wrote down every random question my children asked me. And there was a list of them. I I don't know why they expect me to know answers to all these questions. And I said, yes. And I stopped. (laughs) The Bible clearly teaches that God chooses us before we choose him. Now, that bothers some of us because it makes us wonder, well, if he chose me, why didn't he choose this person? And let me tell you the answer to that question. I don't have a clue. But when you're talking about the doctrine of predestination, the doctrine of election... The real question is not, does the Bible teach it? Because it does. The real question is, what is the basis of that choice? On what basis did God choose one or the other? And there's two big answers to this. There's other answers, but there's two big answers. The first answer, well... Let's just keep reading. According, this is verse 2, to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The first answer is that God, who knows all things, looking down through the course of history, shows, knows that if the gospel is shared to Bob, Bob will respond positively, and based on that foreknowledge, God chooses Bob. That is, the choice is based upon God's foreknowledge. Now, the actual version of this gets a little more complicated because it's not God looking down the course of history. It's the course of history and God, who is outside of time, All these are occurring simultaneously. But the key is that it is based on God's foreknowledge. And this passage seems to support that idea. The second option is that God chooses on the basis of his sovereign will. And I believe this is what Romans chapter 9, teaches us, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, before they were even born, before they had done anything good or bad, I chose. But that's not fair. And Paul in in, uh, Romans chapter 9 goes on to say, Who are you to argue with what God has chosen to do? We hate that idea. So, which is it? And the answer is, yes. (laughs) The individual I was talking to yesterday, when I mentioned I was going to do 1 Peter and I just finished the doctrinal statement, he actually raised the question, why doesn't the doctrinal statement take one side or the other with regard to the doctrine of election and the doctrine of predestination? I said it doesn't. You can join our church and believe this, or you can join our church and believe that. Either way, we have to understand the fact that the Bible tells us that God chose us before we chose him. And what that means is Peter can look at this group of people and say, you are the elect. I always liked what uh, Spurgeon once said. Spurgeon was a hardcore Calvinist. And one time Spurgeon said, God save the elect and then elect some more. You see, what wraps us up in the problems with the doctrine of predestination, besides the fact we don't think it's fair, is that we then think, I've got to go find the elect and share the gospel with them. No, we have no idea who's going to respond to the, to the gospel. The doctrine of election teaches us that those people who we have no concept of responding positively could respond positively. Who wrote Amazing Grace? Do you know? John Newton. John Newton had been in the slave business He was the captain of a slave ship. If you had created a list of people who were likely to become Christians, who were likely to become Christian pastors, he would have not been on the list. That's why he could look back and say, I had nothing to do with it. It was grace at the beginning, and it was grace at the end. It was all grace. So, the doctrine of election should give us security because if we have been chosen by God and God is not going to change his mind, who is going to unchoose us? And the answer is no one. So, what we have here are two words that you don't think go together the chosen, the elect, exile. When Peter, in next week's lesson, gets to talking about hope, this is the basis of the hope. You are an exile. You're living in a strange land, but you are chosen by God. And that's the hope. Let's keep going. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father... "...in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood." The first thing you notice here is that we have all three members of the Trinity involved in your salvation. We have the foreknowledge, the choosing, the election of God the Father... We have the Holy Spirit involved in our sanctification. Remember, we work through the doctrinal statement. Sanctification is the process by which we work out in our daily lives what God has put into us. We have been declared righteous through the finished work of Jesus Christ, and we work that out in everyday life. But I kept using the word we as if somehow we do it. Well, we participate in it but don't you ever think that you do it. What does it say? The sanctification of the Holy Spirit. God tells you to do things. I'll let you in on a secret. You're not going to do them. And if you try to do them under your own strength and power, you're going to fail miserably. But the Holy Spirit comes into us and empowers us to do that which God has told us to do. Quick discussion about the structure of the book of Peter. When you read one of Paul's letters, there's generally this pattern, not always, but generally this pattern of let's talk theology for a while, and then let's finish the book by talking about what we should do about it. So Ephesians breaks down pretty evenly three chapters about theology and three chapters about what to do about it. Romans has uh, eight chapters of theology, three chapters about, well, let's talk about the Jews, and then the rest of the book is about what to do about it. Peter doesn't do that. Peter says, let's talk about theology for a while. Let's talk about who you are in Christ. Let's talk about what Christ has done for you. Oh, yeah, and by the way, do this, do that, and do something else. Okay, let's talk about theology some more. So as we work our way through this, you'll see this back-and-forth movement between here's the theology, here's what you ought to do about it. But, but, what is the next phrase? Sanctification of the Spirit... It is the Holy Spirit who is working in us to sanctify us for obedience to Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said. If you love me, what? You'll have good feelings about me? Well, we ought to have good feelings about me. No, it says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So we are chosen by God, we are sanctified by the Spirit, and enabled to do that which Jesus has told us to do. But remember, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. What does that mean? Well, you go back over into the Old Testament, and you have all this discussion of the sacrificial system. And they get this blood and they sprinkle it on the altar to pay the penalty for the people's sins. And we know that Jesus' blood is what gives us salvation. The shedding of Jesus' blood provides salvation for all of us. So what's the point of this? We are elect exiles. Peter is not just writing this to a group of people living almost 2,000 years ago. He's writing it to us today. We are elect exiles exiles. We are saved through the work of God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son. We are sanctified because the Holy Spirit gives us the power to do that. We are saved because the blood of Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins. And we are chosen by God, and if God chose us, who can unchoose us and the answer is nobody may grace and peace be multiplied to you that is the end of the salutation in the book of first peter and we'll pick up there next week generally father thank you for your word i pray lord that we would recognize that we are strangers in this world, and not be surprised, but follow you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.